So, as I said, the, the, the subject tonight, or the topic tonight, is I'd like to talk about neuroplasticity and meditation. I, I, I like to use that because there's been so much research in the last, especially 40 years, on the brain that still isn't mainstream. It will be mainstream in about 15 or 20 years, but there is so much, such a large body of good research that's now being used clinically that and I'm going to give you some examples, that clearly shows that the old-fashioned model of the brain, which should have died 35 or 40 years ago, that's still lingering on, uh, of a fixed electrical machine, uh, should be taken out and thrown in the garbage can long, long time ago. And as a matter of fact, when I did graduate work and we published papers, we called for that then, and it's still lingering and taking a malingeringly long time to die. The, for a long time, the brain, which a lot of people equate with the mind, I don't, but I, a lot of people equate with the mind, uh, was considered machine. And the evolution of the brain studies is basically whatever technology, far out technology is going in society, is how people picture the brain. And one time, somebody years ago looked at the history of, of technology and the history of brain studies and, and physiology and link the two together with pictures out of the textbooks. And you can clearly see how it works. So when the clock was invented and people were starting to look at the brain, people thought the, the brain worked like a big clock with gears. And then you can see in textbooks when there was a telephone exchange, you know, when they had, remember that? You, maybe not for some of you, eh? You don't, don't have a clue what that is, you know. Almost even before my time where the switch, they had switchboard operators. And you see in neurolo neurology textbook the switchboard model of the brain with somebody sitting there putting wires in and out of a switchboard. And then it, it changed and, and the, whole, the whole nervous system was considered to be electrical. And then hormones and neurotransmitters were discovered. And even that is still not caught up. There's still people that think that the brain is mostly electrical, which is amazing after 60 years of wet brain research. So this has been going on, and then you get, of course, the computer brain. You've heard of that? You know, the, the computer models the brain because computers are big. So they think that the brain is a big computer. Well, it's not. It doesn't even work like a computer. And then there's holograms. 1960s, the hologram was develop, developed, but with lasers. Lasers. And all of a sudden, everybody thought, the brain works like a hologram. And then we had the rise of quantum physics, well, it was before that. And the brain is quantum, whatever that means. You never see it ever defined, but it's quantum. And every time we have a major breakthrough in technology or physics, there's, it's always equated with the brain, which always turns out to be not true. But one thing that's certain over the last 40 years is, is research has shown that the brain is incredibly plastic. Now, there's a good reason to use the word plastic. If we use the word elastic, if you take an elastic band or a big rubber and you stretch it out like that, it comes back pretty much the same place, yes? Take it out and it comes back the same place. But the reason the word plastic is used, like plasticine, you know Play-Doh? Is plasticine you can shape and reshape and shape and reshape and shape and reshape all the time. 
And that's very much what's been discovered with the brain, is that you can basically reshape the brain almost any way you can. The whole idea that this area here is the temporal, temporal lobe, and this area is the speech lobe, and this area is to do with your fingers, and this area here is to do with your feet, is only partly true. It's a very, very old model based on using very big electrodes, big, thick, heavy electrodes stuck into the brain while people are awake having a brain operation. Maybe testing a million, a million neurons at a time. Today, you can actually put an electrode into a single neuron. A single neuron. So you can actually map the brain in terms of single neuronal units or a thousand neuronal units. I'm going to give you some examples in a minute of how plastic the brain is. But before that, I want to, I want to, I'm going to come back to that, but right now what I want to do is I want to talk about meditation and what meditation really is historically and bring you away from the Western bias of meditation. Thousands of years ago, and I'm going to speak from a, an Eastern perspective, although I can speak easily from a Western perspective, but thousands of years ago, there were people who were wandering around India who had a notion, an idea, a cultural idea that was as common as our idea, which is, if you make money, you'll be happy. Just the same thing. Just, that's just the cultural idea. It's been around for a while. But their idea was that happiness is not that, actually. Happiness is found by liberating the mind of, of gross or difficult emotional states. And they had a word for thousands of years called the word called a Buddha. Right? And a Buddha means to bud, to flower, to blossom fully as a human being. So the cultural, the cultural ideal in India, way before Buddhism, was that you could, if you worked at it hard enough, fully enough, you could liberate this being and become a fully emerged, awakened human. We don't have that in our culture. And the reason we don't have that in our culture is it got replaced with a single figure. And that single figure was Jesus Christ. Do you follow what's happened here historically? So the figure that became enlightened was Jesus Christ, and you can go to heaven, but you don't necessarily work to become Jesus, the Son of God. Now, in the Christian mystical tradition, you're all sons of God, and you can all become married, married to God, or married to Christ. In the Christian mystical tradition. In the church, that's a whole different, that's a whole different question. In the East, there's no question in almost anybody's mind that anybody has the birthright to have great awakening and great sainthood. And it's, many people have family members who are saints. It's great. If you have a society where you're enculturated, you're brought up to believe that certain mental states and certain ways of behavior and being are the cultural norm, then that's what you believe. And it's deeply entrenched. And some of the stuff that's deeply entrenched in this culture are things, and we could actually take a board, which we don't have tonight. But, yeah, I, th I think though it's a bit, it's a bit small. But I want, let's, let's visualize, because that's really good. Let's visualize over the right and the left. All right? 
And if we take a look at the kinds of things that we develop, like muscles, like muscle building, okay, we work at, what are the kinds of mental states, not in this room because you're unusual uh, for the most part, but for most of us in society, what kind of energies, mental energies, do we really devote in a day to building what kind of mental muscles and even physical muscles, as if you were a muscle builder, right? And what are they? What's the predominant one in this culture? I'm not sure that's the driving force for most people in this culture. I wouldn't necessarily agree. If you look, if you look at the overall mental states of what people are engaged in, what are they actually engaged in? The mental states, the emotional states. I would say anxiety. I would too. I would agree with you. Anybody else? Survival. Yeah. I would say that we today, and I think the evidence is clearly there, I'm not making this up, that there's a good large part of people walking around in states of anxiety. And what, how does anxiety manifest? I'm not, not, uh, yeah. But how does anxiety manifest? Fear. Fear? What other kinds of things? Agitation. Agitation. Anger. Anger. Yeah, aggressive. aggressive behavior. Would you say this is a fairly aggressive culture? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you say that our neighbors are even more aggressive? Mm-hmm. Always. <laughs> because we're Canadians. <laughs> yeah. Would you say that there's any aggression happening on the planet? What other kinds of behaviors are considered to be quite normal and quite accepted in our culture as, as something that's okay? Life. That's life. That's life. That's life. <laughs> life in a forest. What other kinds of things? What kinds of other e- examples of human behavior are considered to be okay? That's okay. That's what a human being does. Win at all costs. Win at all costs. Gossip, and slander and Gossip innuendo, slander, jealousy. jealousy. It's okay to be jealous. That's a normal human emotion. That's okay. Willpower. Yeah. Willpower. I've had psychologists tell me, rage is good. I love that one. I've had, right to my face, rage is good. You've got to be full of rage and you're not alive. Really? Hmm? What other things? Love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Entitlement. Mm. We have a couple generations of entitlement. I'm entitled. Superiority. Yeah, superiority. Cultural superiority, individual superiority, which of course hides a tremendous amount of inferiority, nervousness, anxiety of being, what? Lacking. Insecure, yeah. And people seem really confident about their resistance Hmm. It's okay to what? How about this? Let me let me rephrase that, Michael. Yeah, I can't. I shouldn't. I won't. Don't want to know about it. How about this? Uh, would you say that daydreaming, just massive daydreaming, all day long, a discursive thought, is acceptable in our culture? Just like that's what people do, eh? We all do it. Therefore, we all do it, eh? You might have a good idea. Let's, let's, let's daydream away, maybe 80, 85, 90% of the day, which is standard. Yeah? So which muscles are being exercised as a cultural norm? Individuality. Individuality? No, I'm just saying, we're, we're now listing them. Addiction? Highly addictive culture. Not just to 
certain things like gambling or uh, making money or sexuality or uh, cars or food, whatever it is, right? But to just about any kind of object or thing or place has a, can have a highly addictive quality to it, yes? So which muscles are being exercised on a daily basis and spending a lot of time, people are spending a lot of time, what kind of muscles? I'm trying to paint a picture. Which ones are they? Greed, hatred, delusion, pride, and jealousy. And most of them, for, for, for you folks, because you're all lovely human beings, good states, but for most of you, they're okay. But they go like this, a little bit here, a little bit there. Well, what would happen if you woke up one day and you said, you know what, have you ever studied Greek philosophy? The ideals of what it's like to be a great human? Yeah, the kind of things that Socrates talked about, Plato talked about. Let's forget the East right now, Western tradition. What's like to be an ethical, fine, rounded, alive human being? And let's put these on another column. What would those qualities be? Can we name those? Of, of a really fine, someone you would like to spend time with, cool. that you would utterly trust. You go, this is a fine fine example of what a human being can do. Let's list those. Humility. Humility. Generosity. Generosity. Integrity. Compassion. Integrity. Let's list them. Wisdom. Warmth. Warmth. Articulate. Loving. Hmm? Articulate. Articulate. Creative. Creative. Calm. Calm. Supportive. Supportive. Let's keep naming them. Hmm? Intelligent. Intelligent. Assertive. Assertive. Interested. Interested. Happy. Spiritual. Spiritual. Genuine. Genuine. Trusting. Trusting. You see the different quality here? How about vivid, clear, alive, radiant, hmm? full of wonder, expressive? We could go on all night, probably. Just stretch it out. Like this, see? It turns out there's more words. When we've done this experiment with people, there's more negative words, negative state words, than there are positive in the English language. In Sanskrit, there's more positives than there are negatives for, for, for the human mind. So let's look at this culture. Not put it down, let's just look at what we've inherited for the last number of hundred years. What muscles are we flexing that are supported culturally all day long? Self-absorbed. Self-absorbed. Yeah. Yeah, but we've already named them. We've just made that list. Right? If the brain is really plastic, which it is, like silly putty, I think that's good, silly putty. It's good, you've got to laugh about it, silly putty, and very stretchable and malleable, then which ones are we making plastic? Which ones are we laying down? Nerves in an adult can grow about a millimeter a day, by the way. That whole crock of lousy research around nerve cells don't grow after the age of 12 and then it was 16 and then it was maybe 18. It's just poor research. It's just, just poor research. Hmm? You're all growing cells. You're all growing nerve cells all the time. And if you're not growing nerve cells, you don't even have to. You just have to make new connections. We're doing it, every, we're doing it right now. 
It's happening right now. What I want to discuss tonight is how it happens and how it's related to meditation. Do you, do you, can you actually feel now the analogy of the muscle? The brain areas, the maps of the brain, not brain locations, maps, which can be spread out all over the place, right? Not, not necessarily localized. And they shift, by the way, daily. If you stick an electrode in there now, in here, and that goes like, and you can feel it in your thumb, tomorrow, in two days, it can actually be two or three millimeters different. It can shift all over the place. And by the way, if you lose your hand, guess what's going to take up your neurons that are functioning for your hand? Within, within days. Soak it up. Your face. That's how fast it is. Days. Two days. New real estate. New real estate. You, if you don't use it, you lose it. And you lose it really fast. Within days. And then, and then weeks. And then months. Six months. A year. You're really losing it. But it can be brought back. Why? Because the brain is incredibly plastic. Hmm? So remember that. You don't use it. You'll lose it. And it takes a lot more time to bring it back. If the tracks... I'll give you an example. This is a good analogy from somebody else. But if you have, if you have a mountain that's covered in snow and you want to go down a toboggan, you make one track, right? Fresh snow? Go down. Okay. You go up to the same place. It's quite possible that you'll make a different track, but very often you end up in the same track, yes? So after a few hours or a day, you have all these different tracks down the mountainside, but some you're making more than others. Why? Your body leans a certain way. One has more thrill than the other. Thrill's really important, by the way. One has more pleasure than the other. You go, <laughs> that's amazing. One's like, boy, that's slow. Yeah? So what happens is the grooves down one lane get deeper and deeper and deeper until you can't climb out of that lane. And you're going, wow, this is great. It's terrific. If the muscles that you're exercising in the brain, the maps you're developing, are really around greed, hatred, delusion, and occasionally only about love and compassion, brightness, generosity, but those are minor, what you're really practicing are other kinds of addictive uh, behaviors, all kinds of things like that. Or multitasking. Here's another one. Multitasking. Multitasking all day long. You never focus on anything. You get good at multitasking. That's another one. That's another split. So, I'll just continue for a second. So, you, you lay these down, but think of it. A lifetime, 20 years... 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, of a, what can be a very good being. But which muscles are being exercised? Could you imagine, as a culture, that the muscles to be exercised as a very great human being, something that's the most worthwhile thing that you could do as a human, was not to make a lot of money, although that could happen, could happen, but would be to be a great, wondrous, loving, compassionate, generous human being, intelligent, bright human being, because the brain is that plastic, the mind is that plastic.
Why don't we? It's an important question. Why don't we? Culture doesn't support it. Culture doesn't support it, but yet it's out there. Why wouldn't you? I think one, number one, it's the culture doesn't support it. Number two, the culture doesn't teach, I'm not just blaming on culture, but culture doesn't teach people really how to learn. Now it turns out that when you're young, when you're young, what I mean by young is <laughs> under about 20, maybe, maybe up, to your, up to 18, 19 years old, 17 year old, the ability to learn happens very, very, very fast. Millions of neurons are laid down, interconnections are laid down every single day. And the amount of interest, energy, well, Freud would say libido, but amount of energy and interest that's given to a certain subject or a certain problem or a certain idea is heavily invested. But when you get into your 20s, especially into your 30s and your 40s, a lot of people are coasting. They're not really learning deeply. And they've forgotten how to learn. How many hours does it take to learn something really well? Let's get down to facts. What does it take to learn something new really, really well so you become accomplished in it? Is there anybody in the room that would like to learn something? Well, for instance, Janice. Janice has taken up a new business which is coffee roasting, yes? How long have you been at it, Jess? Eight months. Eight months. How many hours about during the day do you do it, on average? Two. Two. Janice, in a number of years, if she keeps learning, which she will do, I'm sure, and she keeps exploring, and she keeps testing, and the market keeps testing her, she will become probably in about six years. That's about what it takes. In about six years, maybe faster, maybe a bit slower, she will become an expert coffee roaster because of the number of, you can actually count the number of hours. In one year, you'll become adept. Good. In two years, it's going to become very fluent. By somewhere around year four, six, depends on how many hours you put in, you can become so deeply knowledgeable at the expert level. A lot of us today don't know what it takes unless you get passionately interested in something, or there's a reward. Don't know what it takes to actually become adept or even expert in an area, unless there's a reward, which means money, or some deep gratification that's going to give you something at the other end, like a job, or maybe uh, being able to be with somebody, something like that. Did you get the idea? If it's your livelihood... Now, let me give you another example. Let's say, and I, I wish this on nobody at all, but let's say for some very unfortunate circumstance, something happened to you, like a stroke, can happen, and you lost, you lose the right side of your body. Not only do you lose the right side of your body, and you can only maybe go like this, but maybe you can only say three words. Ah, ba, and za. And that's it. Can you feel that? That's devastating for most people. And up to recently, you would be told, 
if you're lucky, you can get a little function back. And what we're going to do is we're going to put you into a rehabilitation program for one hour, for three days a week, for one hour, maybe two hours. And, that's, and, if, you're, and if it goes quickly, you'll get some function back in your body. Okay? Would you like to have that right side functioning again? Who in the room would like to be able to use their hand, use their leg, be able to walk, be able to talk? Who, who in the room would like to? What would you do to get that functioning back? Would you spend a lot of money? As much money as you could? If someone said to you, it's going to take six hours a day for an eight-week program, and we're going to work you thoroughly. And as a matter of fact, you want to get your function back better than most people with their functioning right side. Let's work for six months or a year. What would you say to that? How many in the room would say, I want that? And I'm going to work for that. And I want to speak again. How about this? What would happen if all of a sudden you woke up tomorrow and you're blind? Or you know, you're told by your doctor in six months or a year, you're blind. Would you do something about it? It was offered to you? Or would you just say, that's fine, I guess I better get a dog and learn Braille? Would you? Or would you investigate? Maybe do both. <laughs> Maybe do both. Do you see where this is going? A little bit by little bit? I had, a, I, had a, I had a career as a litigation lawyer, but I passed up on it. <laughs> to do anything well as an adult takes a lot of practice. A lot of practice. It's no different than if you're going to learn a musical instrument or learn a new language. We know how many hours it takes. We know what kind of investiture of energy it takes to actually open up those places in the nervous system and create mental maps that are now functioning smoothly and easily. I can give you the numbers. If you want to learn a language for most of us who aren't naturally gifted that way, we're going to have to spend two to four hours a day and the way to really do it is we're probably going to have to be immersed in it in the country or with a speaker of that language for a good part of the day. And in a number of months, it's going to start moving. In six months, it's really going to start moving. And in a year, you're going to be amazed. Hmm? How about a musical instrument? We know the numbers. How many hours a day to get decent at it? How many hours? Two, to become decent at it, to play some basic scores in about a year. Piano, cello, flute, oboe. Hmm? If you increase it to four hours a day, what would happen? It's a much faster rate. Six hours a day, if, you could, if your hands didn't fall off and your mouth didn't fall off, initially anyways, that's what used to happen with me at cello, because you know, you're, 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 you're using the wrong muscles, right? It's not loose is it goes really quickly. Right? So here's what happens. 
someone comes to a meditation retreat or comes to a meditation talk and they hear about building certain muscles like radiantly clear mind, loving mind, open mind, a compassionate heart that just stays open, vivid, interesting awareness, bright intelligence, all these kind of qualities. We go, well, those are kind of just general things. But actually, those are maps. I'm going to give you some examples of people that have been able to do that, but also small areas of that and what's, how extraordinary that is. <clears throat> and what you're going to do is you're going to say, but I only have an hour a day. And then what I say is, well, that's the level of interest. Because it was a musical instrument and you wanted to do it, you put in the time. And if it was a language and you really had to do it, you put in the time. And if you were a stroke patient and you were suffering because you were you had a major physical deficit, or blind, or going blind, right? Do you get the idea here? Or very ill with a very, with a difficult, maybe a large bacterial infection, or a viral attack that leaves your body racked in pain. What are you going to do about it? You're going to have to put a lot of hours in, right? But these human qualities of loving-kindness and compassion and full generosity, they're a bit out there. They're a little bit out there and maybe that couldn't even be done. But it turns out from scientific evidence and thousands of years of practice that all this is possible. Not just possible, it's been done by hundreds of thousands of people. It's a question of choice. If you took your body as a musical instrument, ever ever feel that your body was a musical instrument? Sang some beautiful notes? Said some beautiful things? Do you get the feeling? A beautiful musical instrument. Why wouldn't you develop your body and mind as a glorious musical instrument? Why not? You've got the most extraordinary... Some scientists and some biologists say the human brain, the human mind is the most complex, wondrous structure in the known universe or unknown universe. That may or may not be true. It's a preposterous statement. But it is an extraordinary creation. Let me give you some examples of, how, of what you could do if you wanted to do it. And I want to substitute what I'm going to give as an example for the kinds of things I just talked about, like loving-kindness, compassion, brightness, clarity, intelligence, openness, these kinds of things. There was a fellow in 1977 in Russia, his name was Sharansky, who was jailed as a dissident and put, went to Siberia. And he was there for nine years, and over a year of those nine years, he was stuck in a pit called Solitary Tanks, that are five feet by six feet, right? Nine years, but one year, at least one year, over a year, of being stuck in these pits, right? And as a way to keep sane, he made up a game for himself. And the game that he played was he would visualize a chessboard. And not only did he visualize the chessboard vividly, he played the black against the white. He played hour after hour after hour after hour after hour with perfect visualization which he developed over a long time and at one point he had the idea while he was in prison 
I might become the world chess champion by doing this. Okay? It's extraordinary. That's the game he played. He exercised a point where he could play superlative chess against himself in full vivid detail. It turns out, and this is told, this is told as an antidote story, but it's, it's the case. Eventually, he, when he was released after nine years, he went to Israel and became, eventually became a cabinet minister in the Israeli government. And the current reigning chess champion of the world, was it Kaspar? Something like that. Kasparov. Kasparov. Went to Israel and he challenged the prime minister of Israel and the cabinet to chess games. That was just something they wanted to do. They wanted to see if they could win against Kasparov. Well, Kasparov beat every single minister except for one. And Sharansky he could not beat. Now, there's a very good example of what, what you could do. You could do, I'm not saying you should, of what you could do with the brain. Here's another one, which I just read about. It's lovely. An ordinary, mundane guy working at a bank that has no special aptitude for math somehow gets it in his head at the age of 20 that he wants to be incredible at math, a whiz. He works every day doing things like adding up numbers, square roots in his head, multiplication tables, and within six years, six years, he works four hours a day at it, including, I think, at the bank. But he works at it until after four years he can do two sets of numbers, like, two, like uh, 28 by uh, 91, in five seconds. He can do square roots, he can do uh, powers to the power of five, very, very fast. And he had a new career for himself being on television. The human consciousness, if it puts its mind on something, but it has to have motivation, can do anything it wants to do. The number of hours that people practice greed, hatred, del hatred, delusion, pride, and jealousy in some form, which is culturally acceptable, like gossip, innuendo, putting people down, right? putting oneself up, putting oneself down, we can go on. All the kind of blase things that you would say, but that's not a bad state, that's just normal. right? Instead of exercising four to six hours a day, being loving, being supportive, being generous, being bright, being alert, being perceptive, being creative, yes? Do you see what I'm saying? And saying, that's what this being is going to become a manifestation of. Not, not a math whiz, not a chess whiz, but actually become a manifestation of that. That's almost unheard of in this culture, but it is beginning. I'm bringing to you tonight... Here's the numbers of how it's done. It's not any different than learning a musical instrument. If you want to learn a musical instrument well, I can tell you the numbers. The, the facts are this. Two to four hours a day, at least an hour to be mediocre. An hour a day, that's what my, that's what my cello teacher told me. And she's right, because I did it and I was mediocre. Okay, An hour a day on the cello, as an adult, not as a, not as a child, but as an adult, will leave you after a year as a mediocre cello player with very little show of aptitude or talent. Two hours 
will increase, will double that. Four hours a day, which is what most professional musicians do, have to do, will pop out usually a, a talent. It takes a year to get good, but if you, for most people, if you want to become expert, I mean expert, really, really good at it, you need what used to be in the olden days called the duration of an apprentice, 10 years. That's how it works as an adult. If you are fortunate to start when you're three years old, it's rapid. But if you start as an adult on any kind of learning track where you want to become expert, it's 10 years. Where it's a counselor, a psychotherapist, a coffee roaster, a mother, a father, a lawyer, a doctor. Why, why, why is the usual training of a doctor about seven years, right? Seven to 10 years. Why? Because people know how long it takes. What it is. The duration is normal. If you wanted to become an apprentice up until recently where the apprenticeship programs are what? I've been in, in post-secondary education where the apprenticeship program is like we, we train them in one year and we kick them out the door. It's not possible. Right, Jerome? It's not possible. That's how the college system works because that's where the money is. Ten years, when someone said to you, I want to be your apprentice, you had them for ten years years. When I met my teacher, he said to me, I want you for one year fully and 10 years after that. I did. Actually, I, I spent, I guess, off and on almost 30 some odd years with him. Right? But it was a constant period of about 10 years, a lot, 10 years, and over a year every day. That's the way. That's what it takes to become expert at something. You can all become expert at something if you put your mind at it, to it. The question really is, where's the reward system? I never needed, I'm a bit weird, I never needed a reward system for the desire to become enlightened or a taste of enlightenment. I don't claim full enlightenment. It's preposterous. I don't do it anyways. Right? But to become expert at it takes time. I never needed a reward system. My reward was what else would be more worthwhile as a human being? Does that mean you can't raise a family? No. Then some of the greatest attained masters of meditation and liberation have been family. Have been have been parents have been parents raising children. It's been done throughout history. Mean can't hold a job? No. It just means you're going to have to direct your energies as if you were learning a musical instrument or second language for a number of years until the reward pops out and you go, I'm going for it. But there's not, you know, I, and I think it's partly the culture. It used to be a simple reward to be a generous person. The reward of being a loving being was reward in itself. Today, I think there's just so much, so much dopamine and serotonin required to, you know, for stimulus because of, of, of how you raise the children that, that the, the, um, the stimulus level must be much stronger than that. So that's way too ordinary. Give me something big. I know people go into retreat for a weekend. They go, nothing happened to me. Of course nothing happened to you. Actually, things happen to you. You just want 
wow, I've hardly ever met anybody in this culture who doesn't have, when they come into a meditation retreat, doesn't have the expectation that they're going to get a series of wow, like orgasmic wows that are going to change their whole being and they're going to stay in a plateau of orgasmic bliss, psychedelic happening, man. That's just not how it is. Like, to be happy, to sit for a couple hours. Thank you. Naturally alert, happy, without any object, without thinking about anything. That's an amazing reward as a human being. But you know what? I know people because they tell me in meditation reports that that's not enough. They go, yeah, I sat for two hours yesterday in meditation. I just sat out there. My mind was completely still, totally blissful. It felt totally radiant. So, like, can you give me the meditation now? Or can you tell me, like, what to do? Or, uh, like, that was okay, I guess. I'm going, that was okay, I guess. Do you want some dopamine? Do you want a shot of heroin? What would you like in your system to get you to the point where you go, whoa. Like, that's enough. Just that is enough. But for a lot of people, to sit outside and just listen to birds or hear the rustle of insects and watch the light play in the trees, just be, just be, is completely gone. There's nothing in it for them. There's no stimulus. That's my test of a good meditator. You want to know my test of a good meditator? When they tell me that they can sit for a 20-hour period just watching the mind with no thought, no need for thought. Just enjoying being. Perfectly enjoying being. One position, two positions. No need to go here, no need to go there. No need to read. No need to watch video. Just simply actually be in the bliss of presence. Now we're talking. We're talking something. Because you've cracked the nut. The nut is the addiction to endless stimulation. Because the stimulation is life. There's enough stimulation with the happening of life inside, outside, that it's going to shock the rocks off you. Or your head off you. Right? Or your feet off you. And that's called transcendence. And usually it comes, right, either as a slow, gradual approach or a big wow. But not as a constant drug high. So after 30 or 40 years of tons of research, tons, indisputable research, scientific research, and 2,500 years of thousands and hundreds of thousands of yogis and yoginis practicing meditation and attaining liberation to whatever degree they attain to, there is no excuse except for lack of interest. There isn't any. You can all do it. You're all musical instruments. Go play your musical instrument. It's not a bad thing. You're not sentenced to, pur to purgatory 
And I'm not, sent, I'm not even suggesting this is a bad thing. This is the most wonderful thing you could do. And you can do it in conjunction with other things. can be done. You may not have as lofty a goal as the full liberation of human consciousness and compassion for all beings. You may not have that. But you may have something like, I want to be a loving being. Who, who would say in this room, who would like to be in a loving, generous, open state all day? Is there anybody in the room that would not be, not like to be? They won't even put their heads. They're too embarrassing. <laughs> Shockingly embarrassing. Why wouldn't you go for it? You know how to do it. You know how to do it. You just need to put in the hours. That has to be the most important thing you want to do. The motivation has to be there. It's simple. Any adult learning is so easy. An adult doesn't learn unless it's motivated. And an adult doesn't learn unless it gets a reward. There are a couple rare adults that need no reward. They just like to do. But there's reward in that because it's actually very pleasurable and very blissful. Hmm? What's your reward? You see, that's really what it comes down to. And I'll tell you what it really is in my book. You don't have to believe me because I want you to test it out. Don't believe a word I say, please. Don't. Don't believe anything I say. Go, go find out. The reason the reward isn't great enough is the cultural examples and the trust isn't there. If you had the cultural examples around you and you had the intrinsic trust, you'd go for it like that. There'd be no question about it. It simply isn't there. Your, tr your level of trust isn't strong enough to go, that's what I want to do. I, for whatever reason, I don't want to go into stories about it, but whatever reason, one day at the age of 16, I decided not only do I believe that enlightenment is possible, but that's what I want to do. Absolutely firmly. I told that to my friend, Randy Hahn. He was sitting on the... No, uh, not Randy Hahn. Um, Randy... Randy um, oh, remember that. But he's sitting on the bed, Sunday night, before going to school, we were doing some homework. I said, Randy... He's a, he's a psychiatrist. Randy, put my hand and I said, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Decided. I was unstop I mean, unstoppable. That's what I wanted. Right? I had that, that's what gave me the most interest, the most joy. And I looked at it and went, that is the most worthwhile pursuit. Now, some of you know me a little bit. Some of you know me a little more than a little bit. I've done a lot of things in my life. It hasn't been a mono-dimensional life. And I continue to. As a matter of fact, one of these days, when there's a house, I will take up another musical instrument. It might be the cello. It might be the bass recorder. It might be an oboe. But that's something I would like to do is get back into music and devote some energies to that and eventually not necessarily become expert, but become adept at a musical instrument. I've done out with a lot of things in my life, and, and someone asked me the other day, how do you do it? I said, it's really easy. I make up my mind that that's what I'd like to do and become adept at, and I decide how many hours I'm going to put towards it per day, and I do it. 
And if that means waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning to put in two hours before breakfast, I do it. And I know mothers and I know fathers with children who've done the same thing. They've made up their mind and said, that's what I'm going to do, and they do it. And all of you will do it if you have the motivation. I'm here as a motivational speaker to try to motivate you. And I do it day in, day out, whether you come to see me personally, whether you interact with me, on any level, I am simply saying, I believe, I am biased, I am corruptedly biased. I declare it. I believe that you can do any other things in your life, musical instrument, be a great mathematician, be a great mother, be a great father, I don't care, but awakening, the liberation of the human emotional base into the flowering of generosity, love, compassion, awakeness, intelligence, vividness, is our birthright, and that's the greatest gift that you can give yourself and all the other human beings around, including your children. Someone the other day asked me, what should I do about my children? How should I teach them? How should I teach them meditation? I said, don't. What do you mean don't? Don't have to teach your children meditation. All you have to do is meditate. Children are the most incredible mimics. If they know you're genuine, you don't have to go, I'm now going into my meditation room to do the advanced Atta Yoga practice given to me by my teacher. It happens to be the practice of Guru Rinpoche. On they'll pick a phony. They'll, they'll catch you right out as a phony. If you just go to your room or go somewhere or sit in the forest and go practice, and it's genuine, whether it's generosity, whether it's cooking, whether it's a craft work, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's genuine and it's full of passion and interest, it rubs off. You don't have to make a big story. You don't have to say, now we're going to be interested. Watch me. I'm going to be interested for one hour in meditation. Let them do it. If they want to do it, they do it. Simple. And if they actually see over years that you're genuine and it has manifestations to it, and those manifestations are good, guess what they're going to end up doing? I had a father and a mother who loved craft work. I grew up in a house where we did craft work. My father would build model airplanes and model ships all winter long. He'd take the ping pong table in the basement and would get converted into the craft table. He never said to us, you're going to sit here for hours with me learning a craft. He just went and cut out pieces of balsa wood and sat there for hours after work, or an hour, sanding on weekends. He'd sit there for a few hours, sanding, gluing, cursing, you know, those sort of things when the piece didn't fit or the piece was missing and have to cut out a new piece. And we'd simply enjoy it. He'd say, oh, you're here. Great. Do you want to cut out a piece of balsa wood with me? Great. Do you want to glue? That's how we learned craft. We enjoyed it because he was enjoyable. Simple. He never said, this is the most lofty thing you're going to do. And by the way, if you learn how to do craft when you're young, imagine what it's going to be like when you're an adult. We would have probably run for the hills. You idiot. But we just enjoyed his presence because he was so lovely to be with when he was doing craft. Right? My mother was sitting in her sewing room, sewing dresses. Now she quilts. 
She was in her happy, beautiful, radiant state, sitting in her sewing room. It's beautiful. Playing opera. It's fantastic. She didn't have to go. Learn a craft now, because when you're an adult, you're going to need to know what it's meant, what, what crafting is. It's silly. Lead by example. Let me give you another example, forward example. True. If this person can do it, you can do anything. About 25 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, a Spanish fellow researcher got the idea, a jump, a leap of brilliance, that different parts of the brain could assume other parts of the brain, could take over. And what he developed was a, was a big chair. His name is Paul Bakirita. He developed a big, like, looked like a big dentist chair. And what he did is he, put, he took a blind, a fully blind person from birth, and he placed 400 probes, pushers, sensory knobs on the person's back. And he could actually push an image, a pictorial image, on the person's back with 400 knobs. So you're sitting there, and there's 400 pressure points possible. But he would do a telephone, the outline of telephone. Well, guess what? This part of the brain, which receives optical information, got taken over by other parts. What other parts in a blind person get, get taken over, get take over the optical area? Hearing. Hearing, touch, tasting, and they become highly attuned and they often become much more sensitive than any of us who can see. Yes? And they invade the whole optical system completely. They just take it over. If you don't use it, you lose it. It's called real estate. If someone's not using their field, you take it over. Anybody, anybody in the house like Steve in there? No, probably Steve. We're very similar. If you have any square inches in your house, you take it over as real estate, right? It's free, it's free board, right? I'm the same way. So any, any space, I'll put a craft project or I'll put books there or I'll put something. It's going to be occupied and used for something, right? And as human beings, we generally use that. If there's something open, something available, we'll use it, yes? Okay. Like open space now. Outer space, human beings, if they have the money, are going to colonize outer space. Why? It's there. It's there. We're just going to go and move in there and go find out what it's like. And we'll do it with the oceans, although we'll probably have dead oceans by that time. But we're working on that. Yeah. So guess what he did? He would get those electrodes to push on the blind person's back an image of a telephone. And guess what they eventually saw? The image of the telephone. So well that they could walk over to a telephone and pick it up and know exactly what they're doing and see it. So well, in fact, that they had blind people standing in a room and taking a ball and throwing it into a basket. That's 400 points of information. If that can be done, think of what is possible that you can also do. I give my brother as an example. I don't think he'd mind. My brother went functionally blind almost 10 years ago with an autoimmune disease of the eyes. It took him 10 years of Feldenkrais and 
all kinds of other things, plus meditations he learned from my teacher years ago, like stargazing and all that kind of stuff, from all kinds of people. He spent 10 years rebuilding his eyes. Now, you're not supposed to know this. He's functionally blind, okay? Because he's on disability. <laughs> my brother can read a book of fine print that thick. His glasses are that thick. His doctor last year when he came to Toronto to get his eyes checked, he has no nerves. His, his optic nerves are shot. His doctor said to him, there's only one possibility why you can read a book. You've redone your brain. I don't know how you did it, but you can see, and you've redone it. It took him 10 years. You know why? He was desperate. He wants to read. He loves seeing. He loves reading as a passion. He didn't want to go blind. He fought it. Also, he wanted to be healthy because he was very sick. So I'm telling you this as this is the fact. The, the research is in. The research has been there for 2,500 years. The research, the modern research, which you may believe better because it's scientific, is it takes hours to get good at something and meditation is no different. It's not something that you learn on a weekend. You get a taste of it in a weekend. You get a taste of it by doing an hour a day, but you will be mediocre an hour a day. Meditation is something like playing a musical instrument that if you want to flower what is meditation. By the way, meditation is not being in weird concentrated states where you can stick a pin through your cheek or a sword through your cheek. That's not the purpose. Meditation is so you can become all day long without effort, generous, aware, bright, vivid, open, loving, compassionate as a normal human being expressing that in everything you do. That's what meditation's for. We do this rigorous training to bring that out of the nervous system which already, it already exists. That's been known for thousands of years. All those qualities are already in every single one of us. They're already there in seed form or during the day. You've all experienced it. Is there any of this room who hasn't experienced beautiful open love? Come on. How about beautiful effortless generosity? Just, just generous, yeah? How about bright, just vivid brightness? Ever had that? Just bright. Whoa. Have any of you ever, ever had a moment of intelligence? Like just went, that was smart. Not only smart, that was brilliant. That was really good. You've had that. How about compassionate? Yes? You've all had those and continue to have those. They're already there. It's real estate, folks. It's simply a question of real estate. Guess what happened? The stuff that you focus on invaded the areas. So now, the, what's the rare part? No, the, the negative states are the big part, but the rare part, maybe for you, but the rare part is what? Oh, I was brilliant the other day. Whoa, that's, that must be religious. Oh, no, I had a, my mind was incredibly vivid and clear. That's got to be religious, and that had to come from somewhere else. No, it's part of your nervous system. It's part of your organism. It's just a question of real estate. 
If you don't use it, you lose it. Simple. And the more you wire things together, the more you fire things off, which you think about something, the more you visualize, the more you strive to something, the more the neurons make connections, and the better they get. It's like when I go to work on the building site. It takes me about a week before I can actually feel like I'm functioning properly up there at Kim's gym. (laughs) It takes a while. I'm away for four months or whatever, and I'm going... After two hours of hitting with a, you know, so, so I'm, I'm trying to do some framing and my arm is literally gone. I've got nothing left in my arm. So Kim says, just use the pneumatic hammer. I can't even lift the hammer. <laughs> and if I use the pneumatic hammer, I'm going to probably put four nails in one spot and spend another hour trying to take them out. I'm a spaz. But I know what it takes. It takes me about a week of every day being up at the building site where I'm actually feeling limber and loose. And I can actually start going, yeah, I can, I can participate. You know, it takes a couple hours here, a couple hours there, a few hours there, and eventually. But that's how we learn. That's how we are. Shall we all sing together? No! <laughs> but for someone who sings every day, it's natural. Natural. It's like gem cutting, right? I can gem cut with my eyes closed. But if I'm away for four months or six months or a year, I can make some serious mistakes. But after a short time, it all comes back, yes? For sure. When I learned gem cutting, I've told this number of people, when I learned gem cutting, I would get up at 5 o'clock, well, faceting, that is. I learned some gem cutting before that. I'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning before going to work and work till 7, make breakfast, get to the office by 8.30, and I'd, one hour every day, in the evening, I'd come back and practice, and one day every weekend, for at least five or six, seven hours, I would devote in the morning or the afternoon to gem cutting until one year later, I was really good at it. And a number of years later, I was expert at it. Except for one thing, this guy, I haven't fulfilled a promise, so I'm not really expert at it yet, and I'm going to need some time, is he gave me a rotocrosite to cut, and I have never had the, I've got the guts, I just didn't want to break into five pieces. But uh, not, the glory. not the glory yet to cut the rotocrosite because it's very difficult to cut. And uh, so one day I'll, I'll get some practice up and go and cut the rotocrosite. But, but that's how it's done. Hmm? Any questions? I told you I was going to stir the pot a little bit. But, but not just that, just bring you some good news. Oh, you can all do it. Just depends whether you actually have trust to do it. There's a hundred year old person, you know, there's a hundred year old man at the time of the Buddha who wanted to become enlightened. The Buddha said, You have to you, you have to you, you know join the order, become ordained. It's okay. So guess where he got ordained? All the young kids. He had to be ordained with all the young kids. All the young kids were looking at him like, God, you're slow. You can't even remember your lines. You're an adult. They were just making fun of him. The whole time, they were just making fun of him. You can't wear your robe right. You can't remember your line. He was so wanted liberation so badly, so fully, so completely, so utterly. Three years it took him. And he was saying to the kids, <laughs> who's the adult? He was interested. 100 years old. By 103, He's an enlightened being. 
It's never too late. And I don't care what problems you tell me you've got, it's not too late. I don't care if you've only got 10% of your brain left and the rest has been destroyed. I don't care. Because some people only need 10% of their... Obviously. Obviously, they only need 10% of their brain mass left. It's quite clear. No, there are cases of people that have very little brain tissue left and they're functioning perfectly well. Just make more connections. That's all. Make more connections. You can make more connections by practice. The question is, how do you practice? Then there's arts to that. Because often, you're going to need somebody to help you practice. Because the way to practice has to be sometimes devious. And that's where we get into the whole nature of compassion. In the same way that if you have a stroke patient and you say, just exercise that hand that doesn't function anymore, they won't be able to do it. They don't have a map for it. What do you have to do? It's pretty brilliant, actually. What do you have to do? You have to restrain your left hand. Just like learning a language, you're going to have to restrain your English to learn, to learn a new language. In the same way with meditation, we're going to have to restrain you, which is how? How do we restrain you? We put you in a beautiful environment. We take you away from your normal environmental inputs. You don't read. You don't smoke dope, please. Uh, no snorting around the corner. Uh, take you away from your v- DVDs, videos, iPods, all the kinds of sensory inputs that you need to let you have a relaxed mind. And then we give you enough hours of practice and support to let it unfold. And if you don't do the hours, you get mediocre results. I'm an unusual teacher that way. I think I'm just telling you straightforward. A lot of other teachers, yeah, you know, do an hour. Yeah, do this, do that. No, actually, because I like the end of when people come up to me, not, who've never, not with people who study with me, but I'd like to see the end of people who come up to me and say, well, you know, I used to do this practice for 15 years. And how come I'm not free? Or how come I've still got the same emotional stuff? I go, because that's what you did. Simple. If your goal is such and such, that's where you'll get to. And you put an hour a day into something, every year is going to just be tough. It doesn't flourish. It doesn't blossom. You need to put your entire day as a retreat, whether you're working or not working, whether you're in retreat or not, you have to have your total focus on shifting your being around. Just like, a, you know, a musician? You want to be a really good musician? Not only do you practice two hours a day, but you spend two hours a day while you're working mentally practicing. And that gives you four hours. Actually, it gives you 60% of four hours. It gives you about one point, was it, 1.3 hours. Because uh, practicing physically is about 30 to 40% better overall neurologically than just mentally practicing. That's, that's the ratio. So if you want to get good at something, practicing the piano mentally is about 30 or 40% off of what you would do if you're practicing physically. But if you combine both, you do very, very well. Like Glenn Gould's a good example. Glenn Gould, uh, later in his life, basically mentally practiced. That's all he had to do. He just practiced mentally before he go on stage. Didn't have to use a piano. Just a few, just a few questions, and that's that's it for now. Yes. 
Why don't we have saints in West in in the Western culture? What is it that causes the we we lack do of, okay. we do, but we don't have a lot of them. The training's not there. The institutions aren't there. The the culture it used to be we did. Three four hundred years ago, if you were in Europe, there were saints all over the place. Because it was a tradition of, of Christian mystical training. There was an oral lineage of attained beings passing it on orally to other people and saying, this is how it was, a living tradition. We lost the living tradition. That's why. And same thing the Kabbalah. If you go to Israel today, you find them, you, you find them but you don't find real practitioners. Mm -hmm. they, they've lost, like uh, 50, 60 years ago, there was real practitioners that would go to the woods and spend two, three, four weeks a month in the woods practicing. Nobody, the people I go to in Svat don't know of anybody who does that. An hour a day of prayer, two hours a day of prayer, some beautiful beings, but not the ones that go, I'm going to totally, utterly immerse myself by going off as the hermits used to. Safat was famous for hermits. This is the, this is the very famous place in Israel where the Kabbalah and the Christian mystical tradition was practiced. There used to be a lot of hermits in spot really practicing. Now it's a lot of people doing prayers and going, and going to school. But I'm to told by lots of people there, no, no, that's unheard of, people doing that kind of work. Is it because society didn't support it? I just find it so unusual that we don't have it here and yet you see it in, in the East. Oral traditions die out. It's, it, it, almost came out it, almost, it almost died out in Tibet a number of times. Mm -hmm. It died out in Japan. In the 17th, 16th, uh, 16th century, it died out. There's people saying, as future saints, that couldn't find any realized teachers to, to speak to, to, to even talk to. It happens. There's pockets of time where people that have really done the work have died off. And there's a tradition, but it's mostly a written or semi-practiced tradition. It isn't the people that do it rigorously. So uh, it's happened. It's happened. It happens all over. Culturally, wars, uh, famines, economic situations, all kinds of things, invasions, can knock it out, and there's very, very few people. Around. And actually, some of the hermits, they just disappear. They just vanish. They don't, and, and culturally, sometimes they're persecuted. I mean, there's even a story, a beautiful book I, I read on Zogchen, where, where this man, who was a teacher, just showed up in Nepal and taught this Italian. It's a beautiful book. And the fellow asked about his history. He had to leave his monastery because they were persecuting him for teaching stuff that they had never heard of. So he went off by himself, found in this little hermitage by himself, and eventually people found him. It took years and years and years, and only after years of being left alone, because he was so heavily persecuted. This is in Tibet. This is in recent living history. He started teaching again. Now he's very famous. But he hid away for years. That's very traditional, because many traditions persecute really realized beings. In Europe, you'd be killed. What's his name, the person you just referred to? Forget. Forget. But a yogi. Many of them. Hidden away. Can be dangerous. Dangerous. The sixth patriarch of Zen was a nobody. He was from another place, from another county. He was illiterate. Shows up the monastery, 500 monks studying under this great Zen master, the fifth patriarch. He wins the contest to receive the transmission. Guess what the monks want to do to him? 
kill him. These are monks. They wanted, they chased him. His teacher took him in, teacher gave him the final transmission at night, secretly, took him on a boat and took him across a river, gave him the bowl and robe and said, run, they're going to get you. Stay away for years. Guess where he lived? He lived with hunters in the forest for years and years and years before he dared come down out of the hills. And that was a tame being. It's like that story in Huaneng. Brothers Kalamazov, you know, the, uh, when Jesus comes back and he's arrested and tried, it's called the trial, I think, or something. But we're, um, I haven't read that. story within the story mm. in the book. Um, and preaching what Jesus always preached, he's put on trial. Heresy, and eventually uh, the judge rules that he'd be executed for preaching the same sure. thing. Sure, 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 sure. You did the, if you did that in Jerusalem today, you'd be you'd be shot. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, people do it every year. It's called Jesus Christ syndrome. They just ride in with a donkey <laughs> every year. Oh yeah, there's people that ride in with donkeys every year, mm-hmm. and they have to put them in the hospital because they're completely cracked. But yeah, if someone was actually speaking true truth, I don't think they'd necessarily last. Right. I mean, the last person to do that was the actual the uh, the head rabbi of Israel. He did. He wasn't put away, but he wasn't. He certainly ignored. He was, a, he, was a, he was a brilliant Kabbalist master of meditation, and he's just a beautiful human being. The last, the, not the last rabbi, but he died in 56, 58, something like that. I can't remember when. Somewhere in the 50s. Maybe in the 60s, but he was a beautiful being. And um, ignored. Ignored. Any other questions? I'd like to wrap it up in about five minutes. That's an hour and a half. It's fine. Short and sweet. Tension spans are not that high. I mean, the good old days, you teach for six, eight, ten hours a day. It's true. Oh, yeah. We've remember Ladakh, Dalai Lama teach for five hours straight. We'd sit there for five, five hours. Traditional way of teaching. Five hours, six hours straight. People had the ability to memorize, be able to listen and not fidget, but... Today, uh, the oral tradition is very weak. You can sit and read for hours, but to actually hear uh, discourse, uh, most people just aren't trained to do that, so it's very weak. Hmm? Better do it in short bursts than long stretches. Because hmm? then you've got people wandering off to pee and have smoke breaks. And, uh, can I, do you mind if I just go and have a coffee? Thanks. Yeah, that's true. true. 20,000 of those, I recall. 20,000. Dalai Lama was teaching everybody was doing anything yeah, yeah. but... We sat there, and we sat there for five hours on concrete in 120 degree weather, and we sat there and we listened. Why? Because it's good training. And if you can't do it, well, you just jump and do it. That's the way it is. What happened to the good old days, eh? Good old days. That's it. Well, I don't know if that was inspiring, but I find it inspiring because... And that's, that's the reason, if you want to know where I'm going to do in the future years, once the house is built and so on, and I'm trying to do is I like to, every year, to offer this to people. I'm going to still do short retreats. I'm still going to do weekends to, to encourage people. I'm still going to give public classes and three weeks and so on. But I will want to get to the point where every year there will be a three-month three retreat, and every other year there will be a four- to six-month six retreat. So people learn what it's like to do deep work where the whole cognitive system fundamentally changes and does not revert to the old patterns. And that's what it takes. 
And I intend to do that because that's the tradition, and there's a reason for the tradition, because that's what works. Anybody who came through the five-month retreat with me in Kinmount was radically changed. Every one of them. And are they going to do more retreats? Yes. Hopefully, more and more and more retreats. But the point is, it takes that much to re-fundamentally, and many more actually, to fundamentally redo the very basis of the cognitive systems so that there's no obstacles to wanting and developing liberation. Most of them, after that five-month retreat, have been gone off to be doctors and lawyers. And other good... I'm just kidding. Other good things. I'm just kidding. A month is good. A weekend is good. An evening is good. Three weeks is good. It's all good. But if you really want to completely shift the base of your being... You have to have undivided, no busyness, no talking, no activity, totally subsumed, consumed by being so slow, so focused, that you can start to step by step by step allow those neurons to interlink and form a continuum structure. That's how it's done. That's the laws. And the laws fit in accordance with neurophysiology. Is four hours a day okay? Yeah, it'll work. It'll help. Is six hours? We know exactly what it takes in retreat. Eight hours minimum. Six to eight hours minimum of meditation is the minimum number. That's why we call it six-session guru yoga. There's a reason for that. For thousands of years, it's called six. You need six to eight hours a day of true meditation. That means you're focused, not distracted to bring about fundamental changes. And then long enough, but two hours is good, four hours is good. We like 15, 16, 18, 20, and now we're cooking. And then we can cut down the number of hours, a number of years that you need to be in retreat. Because there's lots of things to do in life, isn't there? Right? Painting. There's art to do. There's dive trips to go on. There's Mount Kalamajiro to, to, to hike up. There's safaris to go on, right? There's loves and explorations and all kinds of wonderful things to do in life, right? Don't have to be sitting on your butt meditating all the time, but you want to free it up so you can do those explorations effortlessly with intelligence, with love and openness. That's plenty. Let's share the merits. May all beings be blessed by this good activity, by the activity we have done together. May it lead to cessation of suffering for all beings. Dante punyakamang asawaki wangho tu. Dante punyakamang asawaki wangho tu. Dante punyakamang asawaki wangho tu. May all beings be well and happy, and may all beings be established in a continuum of freedom. Hallelujah.